Hello, everyone. Just to let you know, we'll start the presentation at about one minute. We're just waiting for everyone to settle in. Okay, just to let everyone know, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. We're still waiting for some people to come in and get settled. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast. Paths to Superior Safety, sponsored by Aveta. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's session. We want to thank you all for joining us, and we hope you are safe and well wherever you are today. We'll start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily affect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question anytime during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. Finally, to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. And with that, let's introduce our speaker. With us today is Adele Abrams. Adele's an attorney, associate safety professional, and certified mind safety professional. She's also a nationally recognized author and speaker on occupational safety and health issues and mind safety and health issues. In addition, Adele provides safety training and consultation services, including safety and health audits. Adele is admitted in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and the District of Columbia, as well as several federal courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, and is a trained mediator and trained in collaborative law. In 2017, she received the National Safety Council Distinguished Service to Safety Award, and she is a member of the adjunct faculty at the Catholic University of America and the University of Colorado Boulder, teaching legal courses in their master's in management programs. Once again, we thank you all for tuning in this presentation. Adele, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Well, thank you, Alan, and welcome, everybody. Uh, also, thank you to Aveda for sponsoring this, and I am an Aveda uh, fellow. I haven't added that to my, uh, my resume yet, uh, but we're going to cover a lot of material here today, so I hope you're sitting in a comfortable seat and that it has a seatbelt. Uh, I've included a lot of material in these slides. I want to say I'm not going to sit and read uh, some of these elements to you, but I wanted you to have a good reference uh, piece to uh, uh, take with you as a result of this course. So uh, we will jump right into it now and uh, let's uh, get this moving. Of course, now my slide is not moving. I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, let's see, uh, have you given me uh, permission? It was moving during our test and it is now not. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop sharing and I'm gonna start it again just in case it froze up uh, when we were uh, doing our test. And hopefully we will move here. Okay. 
invoked. Uh, let's see. I, if you move toward the top, Adele, I believe uh, the when you share the your controls go up to the top. They get hidden. Um, well, let's see. I'm not... Yeah, I mean, normally I just move this. Here we go. Okay, it's moving now. Okay. Sorry about that, folks. Rewind and instant replay. Uh, well, uh, again, we'll jump right into it here, and I apologize for that uh, technical snafu. Uh, the gremlins are in the system. So we're going to be talking about uh, paths to superior safety here, and you know, some use the analogy, the term safety culture. Uh, that term can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And when I was putting this together uh, originally uh, to, to talk on this topic, uh, I discovered the fun fact that the term safety culture actually came out of a 1986 report uh, dealing with the Chernobyl accident. And at that time, it was defined as that assembly of characteristics and attitudes and organizations and individuals, which establishes that as an overriding priority, nuclear plant safety issues receive the attention warranted by their significance. And I, I did want to read that uh, because it is a precise definition there. It was limited, obviously, to the nuclear uh, industry, which was uh, the subject of the uh, report. Uh, but it has had legs since then. Uh, now, looking at OSHA, which is probably our better point of reference than uh, Chernobyl, uh, OSHA views safety culture as a, a, a system consisting of shared beliefs, practices, and attitudes that exist at an establishment. Uh, culture is the atmosphere created by those beliefs and attitudes which shape behavior. So those are a couple of formal definitions. Now, you know, boots on the ground version, uh, which I tend to observe, and, you know, uh, I am an attorney. I'm also a safety professional. Sometimes I'm in there proactively. Uh, looking at a gap analysis for clients uh, in terms of, of their safety performance and their safety culture, their safety programs. Sometimes I'm in there after an accident has occurred. That's unfortunately the more likely scenario. And I can tell you bad things happen to both good companies and bad companies. Um, the good companies survive those events uh, much more easily uh, and all things being equal, uh, they don't get hit with as big a stick from an enforcement uh, perspective when it's shown that they do have a robust safety culture. They have programs in place, which we're going to talk about kind of as the second half of this presentation, um, injury and illness prevention programs or safety and health management systems, you, lots of different jargon used to, to relate to those. But that is kind of the infrastructure that I think supports and promotes a good safety culture. So when we get away from the less uh, formal definitions, you know, we hear, well, it's, it's part of our organizational culture or it's the way we do things around here. And, you know, unfortunately, it's sometimes what we can get away with. Um, you know, I, I've, I heard somebody talking about this in a slightly different analogy saying, you know, that basically the culture is what people can get away with without there being consequences in, in a sense. Um, so you can, again, look at it through a lot of different uh, prisms, but this is really what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, so um, why is the safety culture important? Uh, well, workplace safety and health uh, accidents and disasters that, that can go beyond 
the workplace itself. And I have had, unfortunately, some experiences with those types of things where, uh, for, for various reasons, and as we get into the elements, uh, you know, I can certainly in this one case point to that, you know, a union that was locked out operating with temporary employees, a holiday, uh, you know, overnight shift where you had your least senior people assigned. But there was an example there where my client's plant blew up. And not only did it have on-site ramifications, but it rained shrapnel over the entire town where it was located. There were 17,000 citizen suits. So there's an example where with the safety culture sliding for a variety of reasons, there were both on-site and off-site consequences that ultimately ended up putting that company out of business, to be frank, that that uh, plant never was able to reopen. Um, so again, very serious consequences if you don't take a safety culture seriously. It's also critical, and we'll talk about this again uh, in more, more detail as we go through here, but uh, it's so critical for senior management to be walking the walk as well as talking the talk in promoting safety culture. Uh, but the big thing is the mean green, as, as I like to call it, the commitment of resources. Um, you know, safety professionals uh, can recommend an awful lot of things that will enhance a safety culture or even things that are you know, critical in the moment to be uh, managing baseline compliance. And believe me, safety culture, a, a good superior safety culture, uh, that is not benchmark to minimum compliance. OSHA standards were for the most part drawn from 1960s ANSI standards. And so saying that you are compliant is not exactly, you know, the, the good housekeeping seal of approval as my mom might've said back in the day, uh, you know, you're doing the bare minimum there. So what we're talking about here is really more looking to excel in the safety arena, um, going beyond the minimum. So that is gonna require resources. Um, and when the safety professionals make recommendations, one thing I will say that's important is to triage that. What are the things that are critical to do now in order to meet mandatory uh, regulations? And then what are the aspirational things? If you don't distinguish between those, the wants versus the needs, uh, when you go to senior management, you may end up in a very bad situation where things are not uh, prioritized in the manner that they should be. Um, and there is then at that point, a paper trail that leads liability back to the safety and health professional. And I, I have seen where that has gone horribly wrong for some people uh, as a result of that. So um, just something to, to bookmark for yourself. A sound safety culture is going to include the components that you might expect. Practices for addressing hazards um, and identifying them, doing a risk assessment, whether you're using JHA, job hazard analysis, job safety analysis, um, some of the other uh, management tools that are out there. Um, you're gonna be looking at risk mitigation, um, risk elimination, of course, where you can. Um, also looking at continual improvement, continual learning, both for the individual and the organization. Um, and looking for hazards across the workforce, not being perhaps myopic on certain tasks that you know to be high hazard and not seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, years ago, I was working with a, an indoor shooting range of all things, and uh, they were very uh, attentive to their lead exposure issues. 
on the shooting range. And nobody was really thinking about their administrative staff in the offices until some of them had elevated blood lead levels and had to be removed because the lead was going through the uh, air system and migrating into their administrative areas. So uh, make sure that you're considering your administrative personnel and all of the hazards, including ergonomics, that they could be uh, uh, presented with. Uh, that lead issue obviously is kind of a unique one, uh, but the point is you really do have to consider the safety of everybody across the workforce. Um, if you have a positive safety culture, you're gonna have communications that are founded on mutual trust. You're gonna have shared perceptions about the importance of environment, health, and safety. And I will, again, do a little bit of an editorial remark here. And that is that in my experience, the environmental professionals are much better at banging the gong and getting management's attention for the resources that they need. Why is that? Well, environmental fines are higher. Uh, there's a lot more publicity associated with that that often can get your zoning or your permitting uh, uh, impacted adversely. And if there's a criminal prosecution for, for environmental violations, they tend to be felonies versus the misdemeanors that OSHA or MSHA uh, violations tend to uh, bring. So maybe that is why the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so to speak, on the environmental side. Uh, but you know, the challenge to you is to make sure uh, that there are these still sh these shared perceptions by the C-suite about the importance of workplace safety and health, um, at least getting parity with the environmental uh, uh, resources that are committed. Um, so the bottom line is uh, every, co every company does have a safety culture, but it might be a good one, it might be a bad one. What is yours? What do you present also public facing um, in terms of recruitment? And we are going through the great resignation as they say now. Um, that is becoming more critical because of course your injury and illness experience, if you have more than 20 employees um, and you're in any kind of hazardous workplace, um, it's going to be public facing. Uh, mamas don't like their babies to go work for companies that kill and maim their workers. Uh, your violation history also is public facing. And if you're a contractor, of course, you're going to want to have a good robust safety culture because you're going to be subject to pre-qualification uh, and, and you're going to you know, not want to get kicked out of the ring because you have either a bad history of injuries or citation history, or you just don't have the programs in place that perhaps the uh, screening agencies are asking for. So uh, that again is kind of a high level look at what we're gonna be talking about here. Um, now I've seen, you know, th this is not original necessarily, but um, there can be different methods <laughs> of having a safety culture, good and bad. The worst um, would be a forced culture. Uh, you're relying on incentives and discipline uh, to, to motivate your workers, the, the carrot and the stick. Uh, very often though, that leads to, uh, a boomerang effect where there's hostility toward the safety cop, you know, and uh, there's also this gutcha mentality uh, that can encourage workers to hide issues. Uh, you know, you want to have a proactive incentive program. You don't want to have companies uh, only rewarding workers for not having injuries because that can lead to concealment, uh, especially of those minor things that are right on the line between first aid and, and medical treatment, just as an example.
the next uh, type of safety culture is a protective approach. You have safety programs that are implemented for workers. You've got reams of policies and procedures that, you know, when I'm wearing my attorney hat and I get a discovery request and I'm in the middle of one of those right now, I'm going, okay, cool. You know, when my client starts sending me, you know, gobs of documents in uh, the, the theory of, you know, when I'm responding to these, if you can't blind them with brilliance, baffle them with BS, give them a thousand pages and, and let the OSHA attorney sort it out. Um, but at the same time, what is good for obfuscation in the legal arena is really, really bad when it comes to your workers wanting to know what they need to do in real time. Uh, and these endless policies and procedures um, very often end up uh, leading to binders. You know, I've got miles of binders on my shelf and they have two inches of dust on them. And then when OSHA shows up or you're being vetted in some way, you know, you've got to find a program, you pick these binders up and you don't even know what's really in effect yourself. So uh, back off from that, try to have information, uh, the news that you can use basically. Um, you don't want to have things also that are benchmarked to outdated regulations. Um, I have had that backfire on, on clients when they do proffer a policy to OSHA and it's benchmarked, say, to a standard that came out in 1990, and the standard was revised, say, in 2013, and they never got the word. Uh, that actually can lead to greater liability. Um, now, moving toward the better cultures, the involved uh, approach, where you've got high levels of training for workers, but, you know, sadly, management may nope out of it, and, uh, you know, that can create a, a dis dichotomy really in terms of what the workers know and maybe what the managers think the workers are being told. Um, the managers who kind of check out when it comes to safety, they're focused mainly on, on uh, productivity, that can lead to adverse consequences as well. Because as we all know, in an awful lot of industries, you have that tension between production and safety. So the manager really needs to be engaged in my view. Um, and sometimes, you know, the good can be the enemy of the great. Uh, finally, you have the integral culture where there's a high level of training for workers. Management is also involved with those. The safety and health officers uh, have budget authority. Um, they have authority to stop work and withdraw workers if needed. Uh, workers know that they have the right to uh, refuse work if conditions uh, are not uh, appropriate. And there's a, a system for reporting. Uh, there's, uh, again, a proactive incentive program uh, rewarding positive safety activities. Um, and those are the types of safety cultures, ultimately, that tend to yield those good results. And, you know, there's a lot out there. I didn't try to uh, synthesize the latest data uh, for today, but, um, you know, you can look at insurance company data there's a lot of papers out there, some of which I've written uh, over the years, making the business case for safety and showing that the return on investment for really putting the energy into having a robust safety culture and effective safety and health management programs, um, that really does yield uh, both financial uh, benefits and also improved morale uh, and, and other uh, tangible benefits, such as employee retention, just as an example. So uh, again, just to kind of recap key elements of a positive safety culture, 
risk awareness, making workers aware of the risks, the consequences, the hazards that are out there so they can be properly controlled with worker engagement and reporting. But those proper risk assessments are really the key. Um, I have seen many, many, many uh, JHAs, for example, that just were done in, in a haphazard manner. And in some cases, even worse, they've actually memorialized unsafe shortcuts because they were created by supervisors who had been there long enough that they were blinded to some of the hazards of the job. And when you have these shortcuts uh, that are unsafe behaviors being passed along during the, uh, the uh, onboarding and the, the uh, task training of your new workers, that actually, you know, obviously has uh, the negative impacts that you weren't planning to have, which is uh, the bad practices becoming ingrained as part of your culture. Uh, you want to have a fair and just culture, uh, promoting questioning. People should never be afraid to say, I don't understand what, you know, can you refresh this with me? How do I do this safely? Or I don't think this was covered in my training. Or even, I forgot, because we are human. Um, people tend to be afraid in bad cultures to say, I didn't quite get that. You know, am I going to be reprimanded for not being paying attention in my training? You know, we're having a bad memory. And, you know, if people are guessing at how to do it right, you're going to have accidents. Um, inclusiveness. Uh, I have been involved in uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, activities, both with the National Safety Council and outside of that. And uh, that carries into your safety culture as well. Everyone has to be valued as a worker, whether they are a day laborer, a temporary worker, or someone who's been with your company for 20 years. Uh, everybody deserves uh, parity in terms of their levels of protection. You can't have second-class citizens when it comes to safety. You also have to have a respectful safety climate. Um, and remember, OSHA views bullying and harassment within their definition of workplace violence. Um, you also should have a way for everybody to participate in a meaningful way when it comes to contributions to your safety program, your safety improvements, uh, safety training. Empower people, even at the lower levels, once they have enough of under their sea legs, um, to, to teach toolbox talks or uh, to become involved as part of an audit team uh, or even in the development of new job hazard analyses. Sometimes the newer workers who don't have those blinders on because they haven't been doing the task for 15 years, they will look at it with a, a pair of fresh eyes and really have some good contributions there. Sometimes mixing it up and having diversity in your safety teams, uh, your safety committees, your safety audits uh, or training can really bring, again, a, a new vision to how things should be done. Um, you know, again, as, as a woman working in safety and, and working in uh, industries where I have been a minority for many years, mining and construction primarily back in the 80s and 90s, um, the issue of PPE for women was not being talked about. Now it is, and that's a great, great development. But that's just an example of inclusiveness. You want, you want everybody to feel that they are being considered. And if all you have are XL and XXL safety harnesses and you have a 120 pound woman in your workforce, they're not gonna feel like they're being included when you're viewing the safety for everybody. Um, we talked about management commitment, both the leadership and the resource elements 
as being critical to the ultimate success of your safety program. Um, and accountability, like I said, uh, your safety culture is only gonna be as strong as the limits you set on uh, you know, non-compliant behavior. Um, management cannot drive production at the expense of safety. That happens over and over. And as soon as, uh, you know, from the enforcement perspective, as soon as OSHA hears somebody say, well, I had to meet my deadline uh, for, for production, it's over for you at that point. Now, often they are looking at willful violations. Now, metrics, you know, um, they say what gets measured gets done. I've also uh, heard many years ago, figures lie and liars figure. Um, don't forget metrics, but don't rely exclusively on metrics. Uh, they are critical to measure the effectiveness of your safety efforts, um, accident investigations, other lagging indicators, the costs associated with damage to equipment uh, or to the environment. Um, you know, you want to consider the frequency of training. That's a good metric. How often are you doing in-house inspections? You can't, you know, expect OSHA to show up and be your safety department. They can't be your industrial hygiene department either. I want to mention that both OSHA and MSHA, Mine Safety and Health Administration, um, you know, they're being pressed by the head of the, 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 the Department of Labor to rediscover the H in OSHA and MSHA, the health aspect. And that's very uh, evident. The new uh, spring regulatory agenda just came out this week. Awful lot of occupational health issues on the agenda. Um, so, you know, those are going to be metrics. Have you done any air sampling lately or noise sampling? Uh, but at the same time, the metrics don't drive everything. I have had companies that ostensibly have gone 25 years without a lost time injury. And when I've gone in and done a deep dive, um, that's been really by the grace of God and, and you know, the skin of their teeth or something because uh, they did not have a robust safety culture. Um, and if you're you know, not having injuries reported because you're driving people not to report injuries, you can't say that your injury and illness uh, data, your DART rate is a reflection of a good safety culture. So just uh, take that for what it's worth. Um, so what are the traits of a good safety culture? Um, you're, you're looking at patterns of thinking, feeling and acting that are really safety oriented. Um, that do not let the safety aspects of the job get overridden by production, by scheduling, by cost goals. Um, you're going to have that leadership, safety values, and actions, the commitment in decisions, in behaviors, the problem identification and resolution, um, correcting the problems, triaging them, uh, commensurate with their significance. But don't let the, the smaller stuff, as, as you might consider it, slide indefinitely because there will be a paper trail on that and those deficiencies if especially if they reflect violative conditions having those on your to-do list but never getting them done uh, is going to result in some serious uh, financial liability um, if OSHA or MSHA show up remember OSHA's maximum penalties now are over $145,000 per citation and with MSHA they're now over $291,000 per violation. Uh, personal accountability. Um, you know, the safety at your operation is not the safety cop, cop's responsibility. Every worker, and we're going to talk about that again in, in a little bit more detail here um, in some slides coming up, but everybody has a role 
Their roles are different, but everybody has a role. Uh, your work processes, planning and controlling work activities to maintain safety. And that does include planning sometimes so that the most hazardous jobs where there could be say uh, chemical exposures are being done when the fewest number of people downstream would be impacted. Scheduling your contractors so their flow of the work of one is not going to adversely affect the work of the others. Um, you know, really thinking through the task before uh, just jumping in. Uh, in the mining industry, they've had a program for years, and I know it, it does carry over on the OSHA side too, called SLAM, Stop, Look, Analyze, and Manage the Risk. Just, you know, training your employees to take a moment and consider it, you know, what could happen. Uh, in addition, of course, if there is a JHA or JSA, reviewing that. Don't rely on memory because that's how, how uh, integral safety steps can get missed and then those become shortcuts. Uh, continuous learning, ways to improve new, uh, new ways to improve safety and also looking at continuing education for, for your workers, uh, professional development, especially for those in your safety department because things do change and uh, keeping your skill set sharp uh, through webinars like this and, you know, attending conferences, um, getting professional certifications. These are all critical to uh, keeping a positive safety culture and retaining qualified workers. Um, having an environment that is uh, conducive to raising concerns without fear of harassment or retaliation. And again, that DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion concept has to be uh, built into that as well. Um, effective safety communications uh, kind of speaks for itself, uh, myriad communications out there, a respectful work environment with uh, trust and respect at all levels of the organization. And finally, avoiding complacency, you know, kind of uh, keeping that questioning attitude, you know, how can we improve that continual improvement approach to things? So those are to me um, a lot of the, uh, the critical attributes of a positive safety culture. So now let's do a, a bit of a, a deeper dive here on some of the different roles that people have. And then we'll talk about some of the different systems that are out there that might help you get started if you're uh, really you know, wanting to uh, jumpstart a better safety culture. Maybe you're new to your company. Maybe you've just acquired a company that's had been something of a problem child in the past. I'm dealing with a lot of those uh, situations right now. How do we raise the bar for this company that we've just hired, uh, acquired without firing everybody who works there and starting over? And you can do that, but it does require coaching and mentoring, starting with upper management. So again, I keep banging the, the gong here for, for resources, but that really is critical. Um, the worst thing in the world is to have a laundry list of things that need to get done again versus the aspirational and then have management stamp it reviewed and ignored because now you've got a ticking time bomb in your file if as happened to one of my clients the silo falls down because management was looking at it as just a long-term capital improvement and didn't realize that the safety people were going wait this sucker's going to fall down if we don't replace it it was not communicated appropriately and it didn't get done, uh, much much to the company's uh, detriment uh, you know, in the end. Um, you want to identify supervisors um, you know, who, who can do good hazard assessment, 
uh, but management, uh, upper management needs to assist them as well. Um, you know, you can't just, you know, tune out basically. Um, upper management's role is also to green light uh, the necessary training, the technical assistance, bringing in outside experts where they're needed, sometimes uh, professional uh, system safety uh, experts or, or engineers um, on system implementation or improvement or correction. Um, your upper management's role includes uh, reviewing and evaluating the overall effectiveness to the program. And sometimes the bean counters help with that as well. Uh, because, uh, again, if you can show management that you're really saving money on comp costs, for example, or replacement of equipment because it's being uh, uh, treated a little more gently, um, that's going to get their attention and support to continue That's that uh, concept of improving and, and trying to raise the bar on safety across the board. Um, also, evaluating uh, the adequacy and consistency of uh, what's being done by your internal departments, training-wise, and the third parties. Um, now, also remember uh, that uh, if you are a publicly traded company, under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, you have a duty of candor to your shareholders and to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And these safety and health management systems that we're going to be talking about uh, are a way of uh, effectively addressing your duties of candor and disclosure. Also, I'll just add here uh, that if you are a reporter to upper management, uh, you're telling them the good news, the bad news uh, for environment, safety, or health, and you are pressured to cook the books in any way uh, or to rewrite your report in, in a way that is not accurate, uh, you do have whistleblower protections under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So remember that that is clearly, you know, uh, part of having a good safety culture is making sure that the good news and the bad news are accepted by management without any pressure on you. Um, I'll note also that uh, the ESG uh, movement or initiatives uh, you know, on envir environment, uh, social, social and governance uh, excellence, uh, the SEC has a rulemaking going on now dealing with environmental disclosures. I expect that down the road, that will be broadened to include some safety disclosures as well. They already have that, by the way, uh, where the mining industry has to report all of their serious violations um, and elevated actions to the SEC. So, you know, we're in a new administration now, there, there may be a further push for that. But I just wanted to, to flag for you uh, that there is this uh, overlap between safety and health culture and management systems and your reporting obligations uh, if you are a publicly traded company. Um, now, your supervisors, I'm talking now about your, your plant level uh, or construction site supervisors. They have the boots on the ground job, as I like to call it, making sure that the workplace is safe in the moment, the equipment is safe, it's well-maintained, that you are complying with the regulations but that hopefully you're going beyond minimum compliance and, and uh, fostering an attitude consistent with elevated policies, programs, practices, and your safety and health management system. Uh, communicating these practices and procedures to your workers through the safety uh, programs on site and the training programs. Enforcing the rules fairly and uniformly. Uh, disparate enforcement and discipline 
is also something that you know can not only uh, erode employee morale and retention efforts, uh, but that that can give rise to whistleblower complaints to OSHA uh, or uh, to the National Labor Relations Board, because of course safety is a term and condition of employment. Uh, now that uh, the NLRB, the Department of Labor, and the EEOC have entered into joint initiatives to protect workers' rights, there's even more uh, need to make sure that things are done in a non-discriminatory and non-harassing way. Um, you know, the supervisor's role is to do an, an out-of-boy or out-of-girl or, or out-of-worker out uh, when they are making significant contributions to maintaining a safe workplace. Discipline, but disciplining in a, in a fair and equitable manner. Um, encouraging workers to report unsafe conditions and near misses without fear of retribution. Uh, you know, the, the, as the t-shirt that I, I often chuckle over says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. If you're saying we want a robust near miss program, and then, you know, when Adele reports that, that uh, you know, she almost hit somebody with a forklift because she was distracted, and she gets disciplined for it, and her name gets broadcast, you know, across the company in the near miss report uh, for, for public shaming, uh, can pretty much assure you that worker will never report another near miss again. Um, and that, those are the kind of things that can erode your safety culture. It's, you know, it might seem like a one-off, but it's not uh, because it sends a message. It has a chilling effect. Um, you know, a supervisor also has to make sure that systematic workplace inspections and examinations are being done, that they circle back and correct the deficiencies in a timely manner. They don't have to be the one doing the repair, but there has to be that accountability. I've used that word a few times, so it must be important. Um, and also making sure that all accidents, incidents, near misses are reported uh, and investigated properly. And in my view, documented properly as well, because if you don't have to document something, it doesn't ultimately get done. Um, you know, people start getting a, a little bit loose and sloppy about uh, their responsibilities in that regard. And it becomes one of those things that falls to the bottom of the list, because again, the A word is missing accountability. Now, what about the workers? Uh, they have a role in this too. Uh, they have to stay informed about conditions affecting safety and health. They have that duty to inquire. If they have concern, hey, I'm working outside and I think that I just hear thunder, you know, raise that issue. Is there lightning in the area? You know, that, that would be just a real basic thing uh, for people who do have to work in an outdoor environment. Uh, participate in the training programs. And when I talk about participant, I'm talking about being awake, uh, not taking that nice uh, two hour nap. Um, participating in safety and health committees. I know that people don't like to volunteer for these. They're viewed very often as a pain in the you know what. Um, and I will say that some of the state programs, um, and, and we'll talk about a few of those very quickly here uh, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, some of them are very prescriptive about how people get selected for mandatory safety and health committees. You know, if a state tells you how you select your members, you have to follow what the state OSHA agency tells you. Um, if you have a collective bargaining agreement that says how these committees will be structured, clearly you have to abide by that. Otherwise, you have a certain level of flexibility. But, you know, you do want to incentivize maybe volunteering for a safety and health committee. 
that would be an excellent example of a proactive safety culture incentive versus rewarding somebody for not reporting that they've been injured. Uh, adhere to safety practices. Um, it is the worker's responsibility to do it. Um, yes, the supervisors do need uh, to exercise oversight, uh, but you know you can't expect the safety cop or the supervisor nanny to be uh, telling you to tie your shoelaces. Uh, the workers do need to put their training into practice. Um, but you know, flip side is they have to feel free to raise safety concerns without fear of retaliation. And I will tell you, OSHA and MSHA are taking whistleblower protection very, very seriously now. Um, you know, I'm one attorney out of our national firm, uh, and I am handling more whistleblower cases right now than our entire firm did during the entire four years of the Trump administration. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the taking the inspectors and investigators off the leash now. But I think also a part of it is that when OSHA is inspecting now, they are building whistleblower components into a lot of their national emphasis programs. The heat stress one that's in effect right now, the COVID one that's still in effect being just two examples. Um, and there are more protections now for workers under the uh, whistleblower components of the electronic record keeping rule where OSHA can cite an employer and fine them up to $145,000 if they retaliate against a worker who reports being injured uh, you know, or engages in any protected activity under Section 11C of the OSHA. And that also gives the workers 180 days statute of limitations to notify OSHA. So again, make sure that your workers are trained on their rights and that you document that training, uh, but you know, encourage them to report hazards that they see in the workplace. Even if they caused the problem, they knocked something over and created a spill, they should not fear reporting that to management. Um, now I mentioned already the collaboration between the National Labor Relations Board, the Department of Labor and the EEOC. Um, and uh, that was refreshed uh, from, from the original joint initiative that was announced last November. Uh, in January of this year, a formal memorandum of understanding was signed between DOL and the National Labor Relations Board um, for uh, protection of workers, including their rights, um, their outreach and their enforcement, including work sharing. Um, and, and under the Obama administration, just again to talk about whistleblower protections, um, they have formally had a similar one of these MOUs where if a worker blew the 30-day statute of limitations to notify OSHA about retaliation, they could go through the back door of the National Labor Relations Board. That is back in place now, even aside from the, the codification of whistleblower in 29 CFR 1904.36. So uh, just something to bear in mind. Um, and if OSHA shows up and there's a complaint that a worker is being harassed uh, and they're concerned for their safety, and then OSHA finds out that the harassment is due to, to gender or to race or to ethnicity uh, or religion, uh, they will refer them to the EEOC and tell them that they have another pathway to have that uh, harassment uh, addressed beyond what OSHA can do. So just another piece of the puzzle here, as you are considering your safety culture, don't forget to include the HR department, because there are a lot of things that go sideways because decisions are made by HR without coordinating with safety. 
maybe finding out that the person they just targeted for layoff is the same person that is known to management on the safety side to have filed a uh, hazard complaint with OSHA recently. So that type of coordination can be very critical as well. Um, now, what are some of the problems in safety culture? Uh, very often, you know, what I hear is, well, it's the worker. They're just not doing the right thing. And that, that's why we're having problems here. And I say, you know, hold up there, Hoss. Uh, first of all, uh, when somebody does a misstep when it comes to safety, there can be two paths when you investigate it. One is you find that the worker just didn't know. And if the worker, if the worker's uh, safety error is due to a lack of knowledge, that's training, that's mentoring, that's maybe following what the supervisor was doing, you know, when they said something, but they actually showed them to do it in an unsafe way. Um, the other side of the coin, though, is they don't care. And those are the people who need to be shown the door. Um, if somebody just does have, has a bad attitude towards safety, um, it may be impossible to turn that around. It, I'm not saying it always, uh, but you've got to, you know, do that uh, discernment there. Is it a, a don't know or don't care case? Uh, are you incentivizing covering up accidents and injuries without uh, intentionally doing so? Um, so look at that problem employee and say, did they receive all the required training or was it a lick and a promise? Uh, you know, do you have clear policies? Do you have those three feet of binders on your wall and somebody drew the wrong binder and they were looking at a JHA from, you know, 2003 instead of the one that was redone in 2021? Um, did they learn those shortcuts or get mixed messages, safety first, but if you don't meet your uh, widget production this week, you're going to be out the door. Um, you've got to look at all of those factors uh, to determine really what's going on there. Now, I want to shift uh, in the time we have remaining, and then I will go to your questions, uh, which I'm looking forward to, to talk about uh, some of the safety and health management systems. Because now that I've talked about some of the attributes, um, you know, uh, of both good safety programs uh, and cultures and bad cultures, um, it has been my experience that those uh, companies that have an organized safety and health management system in place tend to generally have a better safety performance. They save money, they get that return on investment. Um, and from, again, through the prism of my, my lawyer's classes, um, they're in a much more defensible posture uh, when it comes to raising affirmative defenses, for example, or mitigating the negligence that might be assigned to a citation uh, that is being issued uh, very often post-accident. I mean, you know, I, I tend to say to my clients, and I'm saying it to you guys too, and gals, um, the, the U.S. Senate said that with OSHA's current inspector uh, force, they can visit each covered workplace once every 162 years. And having handled, you know, thousands of inspections over the years and over 400 fatality cases, sadly, what I have found is most of my clients get visited by OSHA if they have had an accident that, that's of a gravity that you have to notify them, a fatality, a hospitalization, an amputation, or an eye loss, or because workers complain to OSHA. And when OSHA shows up after a worker hazard complaint or a whistleblower complaint, they're armed for bear. Their assumption is 
that your safety culture is so bad, so bad, that the worker had to call OSHA. They had to look up the OSHA phone number on the website and file a complaint to get some help. So, you know, no inspections that start from employee hazard complaints or retaliation complaints, you know, end well for the work, for the employer. Um, yes, there, there are bogus complaints that are raised, but there's still this attitude that the worker felt they could get no recourse other than by going to the agency for help. So your goal should be to have an effective safety program and culture in place where workers feel free to come to you with their concerns and, and not uh, worry about reprisal of any sort. Now, um, in terms of o federal OSHA, I'm gonna start with that. They do not have a mandated standard for a safety and health management system. During the Obama administration, they were working on a rulemaking, um, very baby steps there. And so in 2016, uh, the last year of the Obama administration, really, uh, they put out new guidelines. Uh, they held a public hearing on this. Some of you may have participated in that. I know I did. Uh, but then uh, the, the presidential transition to the Trump administration occurred and eh, the brakes went on. Um, however, despite that, um, in the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now continuing into the uh, Biden uh, administration, uh, Obama, Trump, Biden, yeah, forget them all there. Um, OSHA requires safety and health systems uh, as a condition, in, in some cases, of settlement agreements, corporate-wide settlement agreements among them. Um, and I've dealt with that you know, in, in recent years myself in some of my cases. So the elements of OSHA's 2016 guidelines were much the same as the old, old, oldie, oldies guidelines they had from, I think, 1989. Um, but it, they added a couple of elements. So we now have seven elements instead of five. Management leadership, talked about that. Worker participation, we've talked about that. Hazard identification and assessment, we've talked about that. Hazard prevention and control, ditto. Education and training. Yes, program evaluation and continuous improvement. We talked about that. And coordination and communication on multi-employer work sites. We did not talk about that except in passing. Um, one of the critical elements of a good safety and health management system is holding your contractors to the same level of safety performance as you do your own workers. Um, you can have the best safety culture, but your contractors are going to be the weak link in that safety chain. If they are not properly pre-qualified, if they do not share that same attitude towards safety as you do. Um, and so com coordination and communication is critical with your contractors, with their subcontractors, again, working that into your contracts, maybe holding them uh, accountable for following a safety and health management system as well, whether um, it is the uh, ANSI, uh, the Z10 standard for general industry or the ANSI A10.33 for construction or one of the ISO systems, depending obviously on the level of sophistication of the contractor. But, but that is very critical because if, again, if you have a great program, at least on paper for your own you know, company, but then you go with the lowest bidder for your contractors, where the low bid typically is because safety has been thrown overboard 
um, that is going to have, uh, you know, it is going to lead to your, your detriment, really. So um, why do companies adopt these safety and health management programs or systems? Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, the slide gives you examples. I'm not going to read this to you. Uh, but the driver, not, you know, not surprisingly, is the cost of workers' comp insurance. And clearly, people could pick more than one option. Here, it adds up to a lot more than 100%. Um, I liked that over half said, well, because it's the right thing to do. I don't know that I believe it, but I like it. Um, and increasing profitability, definitely. Um, you know, a minority were focusing on regulatory compliance, though. Now, you know, injuries, OSHA fines, those are some other things. But the thing that, you know, kind of hurts me a little bit in my heart is that only 5% of employers said they were motivated to have a safety and health management program by employee concerns. To me, that is really a red flag on the play because um, if, if, you only, if you don't have employees who want or are coming to you saying, let's do better, you know, you don't have a good system in place. So uh, move, moving on from there, um, I talked about the ESG reporting already um, and the fact that there is a rulemaking going on. Um, right now, mo unless this rule is adopted, and right now this is focusing on a narrow uh, segment of environmental data, uh, but this could be broadened. So what do you have to disclose voluntarily? Um, you have to disclose information that has materiality that is material to a, a, uh, an investor's decision. Uh, would I buy stock in your company if I really knew what your safety or environmental performance was like? Um, and so, as I've mentioned already, there's a lot that goes into uh, ESG, including your occupational health and safety compliance record, which is public facing, uh, your DEI efforts, which may be public facing um, if you're a federal contractor you do have to disclose that information uh, currently to the EEOC. And so that is public facing as well. Uh, MSHA citation history uh, for publicly traded mining companies, et cetera. Um, and I'll, I'll just suggest to you that uh, adoption of ANSI or ISO safety and health management systems not only will help you, I think, have a more uh, robust uh, safety culture in the future, uh, but it is a way to support your ESG disclosures uh, down the road to the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I realize, you know, there's only a, probably a narrow subsection of those on the call today who have uh, who are affected by this. But I wanted to include that information because it is certainly relevant to your safety culture. Now I've mentioned uh, consensus standards already, and they are voluntary at this point unless. They are written into a contract that you have, and sometimes, uh, you know, that, that will be a consideration. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a subcontractor will have to show that they have uh, one of these systems in place. Uh, but for the most part, from OSHA's perspective at the federal level, I'm, I'm being very careful of my words here, federal level, they are voluntary. Um, the ISO uh, 45001 is probably the one that is most used by multinational employers, whereas the ANSI Z10 standard tends to be used by US-based companies. Um, there's also uh, 
uh, under the Technology Transfer Act of 1995, uh, as a result of that, uh, the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, adopted Circular A119, which says that if a federal agency is going to do a rulemaking and there's a consensus standard that is on point, they have to adopt that or they have to explain why they are not going to follow the consensus standard. And the whole idea is conservation of resources. Well, you know, if OSHA down the road does adopt a safety and health management system, it's likely to be modeled on one of these uh, or on those 2016 uh, guidelines that I just went through with you. Um, if you do have a safety and health management system in place, I can tell you it will help you rebut uh, allegations under OSHA's general duty clause. But at the same time, as I've already mentioned, if you're documenting a lot of needs um, and you're not fulfilling those safety needs, uh, that can create a paper trail that can uh, establish recognition of the hazard feasibility of abatement uh, and perhaps even lead to willful violations because the uh, the recognition is there, the ability to abate is there, and then no action was taken. Um, I mentioned for construction that they have the ANSI A10.33. Uh, that is safety and health management systems for multi-employer construction sites. There's a lot of good information in the standard and it is updated as all ANSI standards are periodically. There was a fairly uh, uh, substantive reboot of it when it was last updated. So this is a sleeper. If you're a construction subcontractor, this might be embedded in a contract that, that you're bound by, in which case you would be obligated uh, to uh, comply with this standard, even though OSHA cannot enforce it. Um, I mentioned, as I said, I, I kept saying federal OSHA for a reason. Um, again, we can't do a deep dive on this in the time uh, you know, allotted here, but if you work in Minnesota, they do require certain industry sectors to have a safety and health program in place, uh, AWARE, A-W-A-I-R, it's intentionally uh, misspelled there, uh, is the name of that uh, safety and health management system. Uh, Washington State OSHA. They require you to have a formal written accident prevention program that is tailored to your particular work site um, and the hazards that are present out there. So you can't just buy something off the shelf uh, that covers, you know, 18 different industries and say to OSHA, yeah, here's my program. Uh, they wanted to have a number of elements. And again, uh, their accident prevention program, as they call it, um, has to address total safety and health programs worker training, reporting of injuries, PPE, emergency response, um, emerge, you know, emergency evacuation, uh, chemical hazards, and much more. Um, Cal OSHA is the big enchilada here. Um, you know, they may be saving the best to last, but they've had their IIPP, Injury and Illness Prevention Program, in place since 1991, even before it was cool. Um, and not surprisingly, their elements align very closely with the OSHA guidelines. Uh, now, Federal OSHA today is headed by Doug Parker, who came to the Federal OSHA from being the head of Cal OSHA. So, you know, right now their regulatory agenda just came out this week. Injury and Illness Prevention Programs, or I2P2, is not on it. But I would say that's something we're keeping in the back, or they're keeping in the back pocket, I don't work for OSHA, um, for a second term. Um, and if there is going to be a second term uh, where Doug Parker is in place, I think that this will go back on OSHA's dance card. 
Um, so uh, I'm not going to belabor these. I, the management leadership elements here uh, for a safety and health management system are pretty much exactly what I just went through. I'm just repeating it here, uh, you know, to, to, for your guidance. But what we talked about for the management responsibilities in a good safety culture is the same thing that we have here. Um, same thing for employee participation. Uh, they have a responsibility to follow rules. Uh, OSHA is not going to issue citations, though, to your employees, uh, your hourlies. Um, you know, they need to be given, though, the opportunity to participate in all elements of the safety program planning, implementation, evaluation, and uh, in the decision making in terms of abatement or corrective actions. The safety and health committees is a very effective way of doing this or having employees participate in audit teams. Uh, but also do be mindful if you're under a collective bargaining agreement at a union operation, there may be some limitations on what you can do because there are going to be very specific uh, uh, position uh, responsibilities and you, you can't have people sliding from one to the other without getting into some trouble. Uh, the planning process, we've talked about that already, looking at your safety and health management issues, objectives, and then devising a plan to meet those objectives and documenting uh, your, your process here and the steps that you're taking. The hazard analysis, we talked about that earlier as well, JHA, JSA, auditing systems, uh, you know, there, there's uh, many of them out there that you can utilize um, and then identifying the appropriate control methods um, and doing the appropriate triage so that the needs uh, of non-compliant conditions that put the most people at risk are addressed first. That's really uh, the, the uh, prioritization I think that you need to do there. Um, training, training, training must be done but go beyond the minimum compliance. Now there's over a hundred OSHA and MSHA standards that have specific uh, training mandates. Make sure you understand what your obligations are under the standards that affect your operations, how long you need to keep those records. That's pretty critical. And then going beyond the minimum training, make sure that you're addressing your company policies and procedures, appropriate PPE, uh, reviewing your JHAs or JSAs, don't forget maintenance of equipment and housekeeping, emergency uh, evacuation and, and other emergency responses, security, including things like workplace violence exposure that you might have, how you're gonna handle incident investigations and auditing, um, and then which OSHA standards apply and also which consensus standards that go beyond minimum compliance you're following. So there's a lot there in that slide we could do an hour just on the training uh, aspects of this. And then the implementation and operation following, you know, your, your uh, uh, safety approaches of elimination of a hazard, substitution of a less hazardous material or process, engineering out other hazards. When you've reached maximum where you can't engineer out anymore, you're gonna go to the, the uh, work practice controls and administrative practices, uh, personal protective equipment, is always going to be the last resort. So that is, again, you would structure your approach to, to uh, managing safety for a particular uh, task, process, or operation. Uh, the evaluative phase, uh, frequent and regular evaluations of your program, making sure corrective actions have been taken and maintained so there's no backsliding that occurs. 
Um, if your audit re reveals that you have non-compliant conditions, those need to be addressed immediately. OSHA does have a safe harbor for auditing as long as the identified non-compliant conditions have been corrected before OSHA shows up. Conversely, if you have audits, and this includes uh, insurance company audits, by the way, because OSHA has the right to subpoena those. If you've got documented path uh, of corrections that are needed and then they were not done, you're looking at willful violations with OSHA. You're looking at unwarrantable failure violations with MSHA, uh, which on the MSHA side can lead to personal penalties as well. Um, and then uh, beyond that, uh, management review periodically of new standards that may be coming on board. And boy, if you haven't looked at the spring 2022 agenda, there's a lot of stuff that's coming down the pike. Um, also, your internal programs, spot checking them against these other management systems, um, and getting support for incremental improvements, uh, additional training, professional development. All of that is part of the management review function. So uh, I know we are uh, uh, up in a couple of minutes past the top of the hour. I will take questions though. Uh, but to wrap up here, implementation of safety and health management systems. You're going to identify a person with authority and responsibility for implementing the program. Uh, you might consider them to be your designated felon if, uh, in fact, they're implementing a program and then you're not giving them the tools that they need to do it properly. Uh, so don't accept that role unless the company is going to have your back on it. Um, include a system for ensuring that employees are going to be compliant with your uh, safety protocols a system of communicating on critical matters, dealing with occupational safety and health, identifying workplace hazards, doing periodic inspections, investigating occupational injuries and illnesses and near misses um, and property only uh, uh, issues, because of course uh, those could be an injury case, but for again, uh, a bit of luck, having uh, appropriate methods uh, for correcting unsafe conditions um, and then providing feedback and uh, uh, follow up to your employees uh, and again striving for uh, continuous improvement. Um, the next level, NIOSH has uh, actually registered their phrase total worker health and I think this is really the next way uh, to look at driving uh, overall improvement. Uh, there are 10 silos here with 75 items in them. Obviously all of these are not uh, feasible for all operations and some will go far outside the workplace. But in looking at total worker health, um, that's just another way of raising the bar for having uh, not only an effective uh, safety culture, but having an exemplary safety culture. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions that might be out there and I'll turn it back to our moderator. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adele. Uh, before we start the q and uh, I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. So, uh, you know, we have time for maybe one or two questions. Uh, the first question, I work for a county where safety programs are in place, but they are not updated or even followed. Several departments do their own thing. How can you create a safety culture from that? Boy, uh, you, you've really uh, hit the nail on the head and uh, literally the latest project I'm working on is that type of thing where they have found that there's just no consistency from, from one work site to the next, even though ostensibly they're all part of a unitary operation. Um, 
you know, that is going to be a real problem. And, uh, you know, you have to have consistency. Uh, otherwise, there can even be discriminatory allegations. For example, if discipline for the same infraction is handled differently from one department to the next. Um, what I recommend doing is really, uh, first of all, taking a, a step back and pulling together any written policies, programs that you have, um, and having somebody, even a third party, um, if, if, if it's difficult, you know, because maybe people have personal investment in their policies, uh, doing a, a, a review, you know, where are the gaps? Uh, you know, which is the best of these? Maybe you're taking, you know, kind of a Chinese menu approach to things, one from, from column A, one from column B, um, and really looking for the best of each of the programs that are out there. But ultimately, having a cohesive program uh, that all of the departments will have to follow, because again, you know, if you have one department that's going its own way, they, much like the contractors, will be the weak link in your safety chain there. So very good question, though. Uh, and and uh, I, I saw that we had another question, which I just want to note, uh, asking about root cause analysis um, and accident investigation. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, good accident investigation is a critical component of an effective safety and health management system because, uh, you know, you, you have to learn from the past in order to avoid repeating it. That's kind of that applies in many different contexts, right? Um, so the root cause analysis, though, uh, has to be done by people who are trained um, in doing this effectively. Where I see companies fall down is that they reach the first cause that they identify and they stop there. And very often it is an unsafe act by a worker. 80% of accidents uh, initially, you know, in, in, in what I call the lazy man's approach to root cause analysis, take that blame the worker approach. And, you know, as a lawyer, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at it that way, you know, if I can make the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, that's great. But when I'm talking to my clients wearing my safety professional hat, I'm going, look, that person didn't just decide to reach in and, you know, circumvent lockout, tag out, you know, by grabbing something out of a moving conveyor on their own. Somebody, you know, else did it that way, you know, or they did it and they were observed before, but there were no consequences, you know, because it was maybe a quicker way to do it. So you have to go beyond that root cause, uh, you know, the quick answer. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions we forward to today's sponsor. Once again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Adele Abrams, our sponsor, Aveta, of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.